Welcome to the Offensive Interference Podcast presented by Football Game Plan. I'm the coach, Gene Clemens, a.k.a. Preacher. Football analyst for FootballGamePlan.com, here to serve you with knowledge from a unique perspective. Don't expect this podcast to fall in line with the status quo. Don't expect all the guests that you hear on here to, to be guys brought on to promote my beliefs. What you can expect is respectful dialogue regardless of whether I agree with them or not, based off the study of the game and its ever-evolving landscape. We'll have some fun, but we will talk a lot about football and football topics um, that are um, not only just close to my heart, but I know that are close to your heart as well. Please feel free to follow me on Twitter at Gene Clemens. You'll see what I mean. Regardless of whether you agree with me or not, you'll always have an opportunity to speak your mind. If you keep it respectful... I will, but if you choose to take it to a negative level, I can live in that world as well. Um, Twitter, Twitter is a fickle place, and um, I don't, I don't tend to like to be bullied on social media. Um, my guest tonight is a reporter and an analyst for the NFL, and, and a regular target slash antagonizer on Twitter. Benjamin Albright will join us to talk NFL draft, among other things. Speaking of the draft, that's where we start tonight. Now, a full week removed from the final pick, and I have just one question. Why are so many NFL teams bad at the draft? Seriously, how does every team not come away with seven guys who have the ability to be a starter? And why can't they, seem t- why can't they see when, when the manipulation of the draft is there and take advantage of that? Take the Cleveland Browns. Eliminate the fact that I don't like either of their first-round picks. Um, Not many people had Baker Mayfield as the first overall pick. I sure didn't. Or Denzel Ward as the fourth, and I definitely didn't have him there either. Um, If that's that's where you're planning to go, why not trade down? You still get the two guys you cover, and you add more ammunition to help build your team. But a better question is, why take a quarterback at all if you just traded for a playoff caliber signal caller? Now, you have, now you've created an unhealthy quarterback controversy. There didn't need to be one. If you knew you were going to draft a quarterback, especially a quarterback that you felt was so good that he deserved the number one overall pick, there's no reason to add a guy who's a starter because that guy is going to want to start. And if he's not starting, there's going to be an issue because I know Tyrod Taylor believes he's better than Baker Mayfield. And yet, Baker Mayfield is going to get every benefit of the doubt to be the starter. Even if you name him the starter and he struggles, people are going to go, well, man, Tyrod Taylor's right there. He's a playoff caliber quarterback. Why don't we have him in? We must be tanking. Trust the process. You know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of trusting processes that never come to fruition. Ask Philadelphia. They'll tell you. The Philadelphia 76ers, they're processing right now. Guess what they're about to do? They're about to go home. Meanwhile, the Philadelphia Eagles, they didn't process anything. They took a guy that they believed in as a quarterback. They named him the starter. They rolled with him. They put pieces around him to make it easier for him. And now they've won a Super Bowl. That's how it should be done. Not the way that the Cleveland Browns are doing it. Another confusing team is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Many believe they're a quarterback away. I believe they're a quarterback away from contending for a Super Bowl. And instead, the Jags doubled down on Blake Bortles and gave him an extension. They must really like looking at his girl in in Duval County um, because they can't like looking at him play the position. 
they not only passed on several upgrades in free agency, they could have nabbed Lamar Jackson with their pick, whom I believe if they used Jackson the exact same way that they used Bortles this last past season, they'd be holding up a Super Bowl title right now and not Philadelphia. With their first two picks, they selected another defensive lineman in Taven Bryan, who I think has bust written all over him. And even if he's not a bust, he's not a starter because their defensive line's already stacked. And then they added DJ Chark, who's a tall and fast wide receiver, but he's not even Martavis Bryant. And Bryant's not a number one. How does this help your inconsistent QB in 2018? Their thought, their thought process right now should be all about how do we win a Super Bowl? And right now it seems like they're still in how do we build this team for the future? My last example is my Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They lost day one of the draft. They knocked it out the park in day two. And then they seemed like they didn't even care on day three. Now, it's okay to like Vita Vey as a legitimate run stuff in those guard, but defending the run wasn't the issue last year. It was defending the pass. The Bucks addressed pass rusher with two guys in, in free agency. They got JPP, they got Vinnie Curry to come in and add with one of the best defensive tackles in all of football and Gerald McCoy. You could, so, so I don't understand why they would have gone rough run stuffer in the first round. They passed on Mika Fitzpatrick. They traded back. They still had a chance to, to get Derwin James. They pass on Derwin James. You pass on two guys who are dynamic players at your safety position. And then they take a guy who's a, a two-down guy. I, <laughs> I don't even understand it. So then in day two, they take Ronald Jones, two cornerbacks, and a guard. They take four guys who I believe will be starters for the Bucs at some point this year. But regardless if Vita Vea ever starts, he's only ever going to be a two-down lineman. You don't take two-down defensive linemen with the top 15 picks in the draft. That, that position, to me, can be taken care of in the third, fourth, fifth round where you can find a run stuffer for two downs, get him off the field when it comes to third and long, or he might have to come off the field in second and long. Um, so I don't understand that pick. And then in the third, the, on the third day, is the most ridiculous stuff. They pick a linebacker who doesn't seem to fit their linebacker style. They pick another second-level safety, like they don't already have enough second-level safeties. And then the most ridiculous of all, they pick another big-bodied receiver, pins Justin Watson, and they bypass on two Tampa products. Deion Kane, Ray Ray McLeod were both there fifth round for them to take. Deion Kane could have been that guy that stretches the field for you. He could have been a future replacement outside for you. He's a guy who has first-round talent. Ray Ray McLeod seems to be more like that Swiss Army knife receiver who's thriving in the, in the NFL today. He can also help you as a returner in the return game in Tampa Bay. Hasn't been settled forever. So now you pass up a, on a guy who could be a legitimate number one receiver, number two receiver, an X. You pass up on a guy who could be a slot for you, a gadget guy, 
a guy who returns the ball, and you get a guy who only really fills in one area. He's the leading receiver in pin history, but what is that really saying? And, and if you look at his statistics, he's the leading receiver in pin history, and his statistics aren't even that much better than Kane's or, or, um, um, or, or Ray Ray McLeod's. So I look at that and I say, man, it's just another example of teams that are making it harder than it has to be. And I'm joined on this inaugural offensive interference podcast by um, a man who is loved and seems to love to be hated, or at least um, people love to hate him, um, Benjamin Albright. Um, welcome to the podcast, Benjamin. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, I think the title's apropos. It's uh, offensive interference, given how, uh, I guess, offensive I am to most of Twitter. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think that anybody with a anybody with an original opinion tends to be um, more offensive to Twitter. It seems to be a lot of um, sheep on Twitter a lot of times. Um, people who are just willing to follow the flock and don't want to, you know, step out and make you know make names for themselves, or at least just say things that they really and truly think um, without fear of being ostracized or back you know, any type of backlash that might come for that. So I think from that perspective, um, what you do and, and the things that you say, and, and we've we've spoken before, so I know that these are well-researched things that you say. You don't just, you know, shoot from the hip. But I think it, it, it throws people off because when you, when you say them and then you back them up with facts, there's nothing for them to say other than, oh, well, he's a hater or he doesn't like somebody or whatever it might be. Um, you know, from from that perspective. Yeah, I would say it's, it's probably accurate. I think that's the, uh, in my opinion, the, the largest flaw with social media is that uh, it aspires to groupthink. It aspires to conformist opinion rather than uh, researching things or trying to look at different perspectives or different angles. Uh, and it's something I, I've always appreciated in our interactions. Uh, you know, is that you come at something with, uh, you know, with an honesty and integrity of thought, uh, you know, rather than just parroting what somebody else says. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that's a big problem out there. I hope that, you know, maybe people, uh, you know, one day will wake up and be like, oh, you know, I can think for myself. Definitely. I definitely agree there. So one of the things that, that I've always wondered about, and you seem to be someone who is plugged into um, the way in which the, the, for, for lack of a better term, the way in which the man thinks, um, the NFL, the front offices, um, you seem to have a, a finger on that pulse. And it's always been a mystery to me about the, the teams that choose to draft for now and the teams that are choosing to draft for the future. So I'll give you two cases in point. Um, the New York Giants seem to really be drafting for now. Um, they didn't go out and get a quarterback in the early rounds. Um, they made sure that they got offensive weapons, um, things to help in aging Eli Manning. Um, even with a new head coach and a new regime in place, that would have read to everybody else, like, this is a great time to rebuild. They seem to double down on Eli and, and say, you know what, we're going to try to get some wins now. On the opposite side of that, a team that I actually believe is closer to winning than the Giants, um, the Cleveland Browns, 
they seem to make a move that to me said, hey, we're looking towards the future. But I wonder if you agree, um, because I think that with a, a quarterback like Tyrod Taylor, you can win now. I think he's proven that in, in Buffalo, but they went and got a whom clearly they believe is going to be their quarterback of the future. And I know your number one quarterback. Um, so, so I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering what their thought process is there with whom they decided to draft as far as thinking about right now or thinking about the future. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think that you know, the Giants and Dave Gettler's philosophy has always been weak now because if you don't, uh, the players that you're stockpiling are going to be winning for somebody else. Uh, and we saw, you know, of course, Gettleman's been fired before, so he understands the, uh, you know, the, the small margin uh, that, that there that exists for a general manager, um, you know, out there. So uh, from that perspective, I can certainly appreciate him putting weapons around uh, Eli Manning, although, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, I think that running back that high is the wrong move. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the, the Browns, I think they're definitely trying to get now, it's always been Dorsey's thing. Um, and they did. They went out and got Tyrod Taylor for that purpose, a quarterback who uh, dragged a team that was trying to tank uh, to the playoffs, kicking and screaming. Um, so much so, he was so good, they even benched him to put another guy in to deliberately lose um, <laughs> until fan backlash got too much and they had to put him back in. Um, so, you know, I think uh, <laughs> I think the Browns have set themselves up with, with Tyrod in a, a scenario or a situation where they could try to be competitive this year and show that, you know, the team is quote-unquote turned a corner. Uh, but they've also set themselves up with a developmental prospect in Baker Mayfield who they think, you know, could be the future long-term. Uh, you know, I, I like Tyrod. I think Tyrod's a serviceable guy. Um, and I, I certainly think you can win with him. We've seen that. Um, you know, he's proven. But I don't think that anybody thinks he is a long-term option for better or worse, whether that's um, a, a, a flawed opinion or not, uh, which I would consider a flawed opinion. I think he can be just as effective as, say, an Alex Smith uh, in this league who can, you know, take you to the playoffs. And if you've got a good enough defense, he can win you some. Um, so, you know, I, I think that they've set themselves up for a situation where if Tyrod pans out and Baker doesn't, then it works. If Tyrod pans out and Baker both pan out, then they've got a, a, a wealth of riches. Uh, and if, uh, you know, if Baker doesn't pan out well, then they've got Tyrod to kind of carry them through. So I think they've just kind of set themselves up in a scenario where uh, we're trying to make sure we have a quarterback now, but also prime ourselves for the future if we get a chance. Okay, so so that being said, give me the team that you will say that you would say is in complete and total win now mode based off of how they're drafting. Well, um, the Broncos would definitely be in win now mode. Um, that's the only mode they know. John financially is a guy who desperately wants to. Um, except that the cost is too much. <laughs> uh, that's the reason they didn't get Correa's table. They will go with him on and off. Uh, rather than take the trade that they had, they had an agreed upon deal with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, if Josh Allen was there, the Bills were going to come to five and get him. Uh, and the, the Broncos would turn out of that spot. Now, rather than taking that and multiplying their draft picks, they kind of do it as uh, stockpile picks, stockpile plays for the future mode. 
I think they did grab the win now. They, they stayed where they were at, got shoved. They didn't move up in the second round for Will Hernandez. They stayed quick, got Royce Freeman. Uh, you know, and there, there are some future moves in there. And if you look at Cortland Sutton and Deshaun Hamilton, uh, those guys are going to be the next DP and Emmanuel Sanders on this roster. Uh, so I think there's an eye for the future, but I think they're in week now bowed. Um, I think the Chargers kind of fall on that too. Uh, teams that tend to draft positions that tend to be win now teams. Got you. And who is in full fledged? We have, we're not even thinking about now. We're thinking about, you know, years down, years down the line. The Buffalo Bills. Um, they, and, and to Tyrod's de- uh, detriment. I mean, you know, they took a guy who was, like I said, dragged that team to the playoffs even when they were trying to tank. Uh, you know, and then jettisoned him for next to nothing. Um, you know, they, they did Tyrod wrong. I think Tyrod's going to come into this season, and if he can, you know, if he can get out there and stay healthy, I mean, he could have a monster season. Because if he's really play with a chip on his shoulder, you know, I think he's a guy who kind of got done wrong by a team that is trying to, for some reason, had a playoff caliber roster, but decided they needed to blow it up and uh, and, and, and try something else. Uh, and you look at that Buffalo roster, you got AJ McCarron, he's a nobody. Uh, you got Josh Allen. Maybe he turns into something down the line, but right now he's just, you know he's struggling. He's the seventh best quarterback in Mountain West. You know he's not going to miraculously be a top quarterback in the NFL right away. Um, so you know you, you look at Buffalo and you're like, what are you doing? Uh, it, it, you're squandering the best years of, of, of Sean McCoy. You squandered Tyrod Taylor. Um, you know it, it, that team. I just I just don't understand what they're doing. Yeah, it, it always it always baffles me. It's when when people have the narrative that well if you don't have a chance to win the super bowl or to win a championship this year then you should try to be as worse as you can possibly be and i'm like but if you make the playoffs then you have a chance to win the championship anything can happen um and so when you see a team like buffalo who i mean literally just did everything they possibly could um to downgrade the, the offense before the year started outside of benching Tyrod and and LaShawn McCoy to start the year and then within the year tried to find ways to um sabotage it even more. You you just you just scratch your head. Um but that brings me to an, another point, especially about quarterbacks, because I think we're both in agreement that I don't see Josh I don't see Josh Allen as a a legitimate like long-term starter in the NFL. I think he's a project at best. Um, I know that you he's not high on your list, um, but the person that we spoke about earlier that is high on your list, Baker Mayfield, um, I'm not as high on Baker Mayfield as you are, as some other people are, um, but it's interesting because I think that you gave a really, a really interesting comp for a guy I am high on. Um, and in Saquon Barkley, and you said that Saquon Barkley was probably more like a Felix Jones type um, in the NFL, and, and I, I actually didn't mind the comp because I think that Felix Jones is a you know a, a good running back um, who just may have not been at the time in a system that was the best for him, um, whereas Saquon Barkley may have an opportunity to go into a system that works for the skill sets that he has. Um, you think that the Giants reached 
on Saquon Barkley. Like they they really just went outside of the box on Saquon Barkley, correct? Um, yeah, I think Saquon is a good running back prospect. I think a lot of that got a little overblown because my criticisms of him and, and my my opinion on and my stance on not taking a running back in the top ten due to the fifth year option constraints and the salary um, the, the salary value that you end up paying to a guy like that. Um, I think he's a good running back prospect. He was in my top 20 players in this draft. Uh, I think I had him 14th. Um, he, he just does, he reminds me a lot of those Arkansas running backs, McFadden and Jones, uh, guys that, you know, were good running backs, don't get me wrong. They were just in the wrong systems. And there were guys that, um, that shied away from contacts. There were guys that liked to bounce it outside. Uh, and for Saquon, you know, part of the appeal is that you've got this 230-pound running back that runs at that speed, but uh, when you look at the tape, he's a guy that avoids contact. Now, is that a guy in college trying to preserve himself for the pro game, or is that the way he really runs? You know, is, is it uh, a guy not trying to get himself hurt before he gets paid? I, You know, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't speak to his motivation, but um, I just saw a guy that, that, looked to, that sought to avoid contact and uh, didn't really run to me with the greatest vision. Just seemed like a guy who sprinted to the hole and if it wasn't there, tried to bounce it outside and sprint some more down athlete, everybody. Uh, there's a market for that. There's, you know, there's a place for that. But if you're going to be um, a guy who's drafted in the top five of the draft, you're going to be an elite running back, you've got to have that vision. Um, and if I look back at the, the last couple of running backs who uh, were drafted in the top ten, guys like Leonard Fournette or Ezekiel Elliott, Christian McCaffrey, or um, you know Todd Gurley, uh, you know I would rank Barkley fourth out of five on that list, and we only Christian McCaffrey behind him. Uh, so you know I, I think that um, drafting a running back that high for financial purposes is financially the wrong thing to do. Uh, and then my evaluation of Barkley, I thought was lower than the pick that they could have done there. There were several teams looking to get up and get a quarterback. Uh, Dave Gettleman was just being stubborn and refusing to trade back um, because that's what he is. He doesn't trade back in the draft, never has. So um, I, I think that uh, um, if he had been more flexible and more willing to uh, move backwards, he could have gotten draft picks that would have allowed him to get Saquon Barkley additional help along that offensive line. Uh, and, and come away, I think, in a better position because you wouldn't have had to pay Saquon as much. Because um, Saquon's at the end of the league is the third highest paid running back. So, um, you know, that was my my trepidation. That was my problem with the move. Not the player who I think is going to be a good player. I don't think he's a generational running back, but I think he's a good running back. And he'll be good. Um, but my thing was more, my problem with was more the financial aspect of it. It's in, from a front office perspective, it does not make sense to stack that much money in a running back position when, you know, the, the efficacy coefficient for a running back uh, and rushing efficiency win in the uh, in the NFL is about 0.31, where uh, passing efficiency is about 0.61, which means you only have to be about half as efficient as a passer as you do a runner in order to succeed and win football games in the NFL. Fair enough. I I tend to look at Gettleman's decision saying that if him taking Barkley where he took him meant that he didn't feel that trading down, he could still get Barkley. Now, whether that's I can, true or I can, not... I can, I, can get, I can get with that. I and, can get with that opinion. And if, if, if Barkley's your guy, if Barkley's your guy and he's the dude on your, on your board as your number one guy, and you know you can't get him if you trade down to, say, you know, six... Um, what other options does he have but to take him there? And so I think that while I while I I understand what you're saying about him being 
the highest paid, you know, the you know, one of the top five highest paid running backs in the league, most running backs come ready made. And so if he's ready made, these next five years might be the best five years that he gives you. So at least you're getting your money's worth. Well, statistically speaking, you're you're absolutely right. There's the you know, there's a lower learning curve for running back than there is for other positions. They do come ready made. Um, and you are probably going to get the best years off the first contract. Um, you know, that said, if you're a general manager, um, you, you have a finite amount of cap dollars, you know, that you can shuffle around to make a, to make up a roster. Um, and, you know, in order to put the best team on the field, uh, statistically speaking, uh, allocating those dollars to the running back position doesn't usually work. Uh, if we go back and look over the Super Bowl rosters the last 10 years, it just, it just hasn't worked. The only real running back that kind of dragged their offense to a Super Bowl uh, over the last 10, 15 years, you know, Jamal Lewis with the Ravens. Um, you could make a case for the, those Bears teams um, that, uh, that, that Benson and uh, uh, Howard. Who was the other back well, the at the time? Yeah. Howard. Um, was that Howard? Howard? Uh, the other um, back. Not Howard. Um, Forte. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, Matt Forte. Forte. You know, kind of work together to, to drag him there. But other than that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Marshawn Lynch, but Marshawn Lynch's uh, rushing totals really didn't spike. Um, he was he was about a four point two per carry guy uh, until Russ Wilson showed up, and then he got up over five. And that's because having a mobile quarterback there is always going to open up rushing lanes for you and always help you out. You know. Um, so what about those? You know, Marshall, what about those Broncos? But, what about those Terrell Davis Broncos teams? I mean, I could argue that he was the star of the offense, not not John Elway. Well, you'd be correct too. Terrell Davis was, but the threat that Elway had there in the career as a passer kept a, kept the safety out of the box. That said, I mean, we're also talking about uh, the late nineties there when those teams were still going. The defense was really in the run game with a, with a strong aspect, but. Um, you know, the other part of that is we're talking about an era of football. It's, it, football isn't played the same now as it was in those years, even the years that Elway won uh, and, and Terrell Davis won uh, in the 90s. You know, we, we use more three-wide concept now. We use uh, spread concepts. We, we do have, uh, even with the narrow hashes, people trying to get the wide side of the field for uh, for the pop screen game. Um, you, know, you see a lot more spread, college concepts now than you do then. It's Passing efficiency has really taken off. We've seen 5,000-yard passers over the last couple of years. You know, we've seen 70% completion percentage quarterbacks. Um, and even in the 90s, we just didn't have that. Um, you know, guys that were passing at 60% or barely accounted for half the week. So with passing becoming an extension of the one game now in the way that they do things, if you look at some of the more creative uh, pass games out there, uh, or the way Andy Reid treats the running back out of backfield as another receiver, the extension of the game, um, you know, you really kind of see that it's more efficient to throw the football down. And so running backs aren't the evaluation of the position is is more because of the adaptation of the game, not that running backs are suddenly quote unquote less valuable. Okay, so looking at looking at it from from a a cap room perspective, why is it smart for the Browns who have a starting quarterback that they're paying a good amount of money? to then invest in a first-round draft pick at quarterback that they also have to pay a good amount of money? Well, Baker Mayfield comes into the league as the number 23 overall um, quarterback in terms of expense, where at number two, Saquon Barkley comes into the league as the number three running back in terms of expense. Uh, because of positional value, quarterbacks at pass rushers tend to get paid more money. Um, and, and the way 
weight on that, if you start looking at weighted averages and salaries, um, it means that you're going to have to allocate more dollars to that position, specifically pass rusher, where you're going to have at least two, and you probably need three or four uh, on your roster in order to keep the rotation fresh. And that just didn't include interior rushers. Um, so, you know, the, this idea that uh, people have come across over the last couple of years is, hey, we can get two or three young buck running backs that we got on day three with some athleticism, stash them on the roster, save that money, uh, and use that money on pass rushers, corners, and a quarterback uh, or an offensive tackle, uh, you know, in an effort to try to build the best possible roster we can. It's more a roster construction concept thing than uh, anything else. Now, to speak to your question, um, why is it smart to do that? Well, it's smart to stockpile positions of value because the quarterback, if your if your quarterback goes down, um, you know, they, then you're on to the backup quarterback. And Tyrod's also on a short-term contract, so you probably want to get some stability behind that to their leverage him in renegotiation or move on from him and move on to the next guy. So, uh, to me, that's the intelligence behind it. Okay, so we got we and we have a guy in Baker Mayfield who. Um, I think is a good quarterback, has a chance to be a serviceable starter, but I don't see star when I when I when I look at Baker Mayfield. You think that he's a like this is the dude. He's gonna be the the guy of this draft um when it, when everything is said and done. Is that correct? I think he's Alex Smith with ball velocity. And I think that's I think that's the template in the modern NFL. So you think he's Alex Smith with ball velocity is Alex Smith with ball velocity. What you know of him, right. Of, of Alex Smith right now, is that really worth the first overall pick? Well, Alex was the first overall pick too. I know, but um, I would, I would I, argue that I, was a wasted pick. <laughs> I think that obviously if he could go back and redo it, Aaron Rodgers would be the pick there. But um, I think that I think that Alex Smith with ball velocity is. I think it is because Alex Smith, as it is, the one weakness that he has is an inability or a knack for not throwing deep and not trusting his arm. And he doesn't really have the arm strength to push the ball down there. Uh, we saw him, um, you know, kind of open up a little bit this past year with Nagy's system and having weapons like Tyree Kill and Albert Wilson and uh, Travis Kelsey to throw to. But, Anytime you have a quarterback who's a quick processor in the, in the short to mid game uh, and has the ability to get the ball beat, keep the safeties out of the box, um, you know, I, I think that's the template for the modern quarterback, the way the game has evolved. Um, is Alex going to win you a Super Bowl? Probably not. Uh, is, if, if Alex had plus velocity, he might. Uh, but I think he's, you know, I think everybody knows what the game on him is. He's uh, going to be a safe, consistent quarterback, not turn you over, but he's never going to put you on his back and carry you. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, the anti-Michael Dick in a sense. Michael Dick had phenomenal athleticism. He was great. He had explosive plays. Uh, you could never count him out. But he also wasn't consistent with that. You know, he stringed together three mind-blowing plays and then had two head-scratchers back-to-back. Um, so, you know, coaches value consistency. And for better or worse, guys, that's why guys like Blooping Brian Hoyer keep getting jobs. Uh, because he's consistent. You know what you got, you know what you're getting. Um, and it's why, unfairly, guys like Lamar Jackson get uh, pushed to the back part of the first round because people worry about that consistency. They see the jaw drop in place, but they say, can he replicate that on a consistent basis? Um, because my offense requires consistency. I can't play call to, uh, you know, home run 
followed by six strikeouts or vice versa. I mean, that'd be a big hyperbolic there, but hopefully the point's going to get across. Well, yeah, and but but I think that even even in that point you just made, home run with six strikeouts still gets you a home run in in the NFL. I, I agree. Like I agree. A home run in six the strikeouts NFL is, is a damn league. good. You know. I agree, but the NFL is a singles league. They're going to take Ichiro over Adam Dunn every time. You know, they're going to take the guy who gets you a single and gets on base, um, you know, the, the majority of the time versus the guy who has the spectacular home run but also strikes out of it. It's just and whether that's a backwards mentality, I mean, we could spend hours debating that. Um, and I, I probably side with you on it, to be honest. But uh, that's I'm trying to separate my personal feelings on it from the way it is. And I and I wanna but I wanna explore this this idea of consistency and what consistency actually gets you because Alex Smith's consistency also um can result in you not putting points on the board. Um he has times where his con- conservativeness is a detriment to his team. Um, and the same could be said about Tyrod Taylor, um, for that, you know, for that, for that, you know, in that realm where, man, you wish he would try to, you know, hit more home runs. And so it's like, if your if your numbers and I've, I've, I haven't done any math on it, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but if you're saying that if, if we're saying that Lamar Jackson is penalized because he might hit a home run and strike out however many times, how many home runs does he need in a game in order to win it? Because I could argue that if he's giving you, if he's going to give you personally two home runs a game built on what you're doing offensively, that's going to net you with everything else. It should net, it should net you somewhere over 21 points. Right. And that's, you know, I, I think that would be an interesting mathematical study I would certainly love to read because off the top of my head, if you start to think about it, the winning percentage on some of these quarterbacks who had poor completion percentages but home run ability is actually quite high. You go back and look at, like, for instance, Vince Young, exactly. who was not a great passer. He was a one read, you know, one read passer, but how did he win so many football games? Because he, cause he would hit those two or three home runs a game, followed by the, you know, eight or nine, you know, duds. But that was enough. But those you know? eight or, and so those eight or nine duds, those eight or nine duds would eat up a lot of clock. Right. right? Those right. eight or nine duds but, that didn't actually, you know, turn into points ate up a lot of clock. And it, it's one of the reasons why I always get frustrated when people say Vince Young was a bust. Like, how can you be a bust with a winning record? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't quite understand right. that. But I, I get what you're saying. It, it's a, it's a fascinating. Um, situation. I don't want to waste all of our time talking about it because I know we can go on forever. It'll be interesting to see because I think the one thing against Baker, if he's Alex Smith with with, with arm velocity, he's not Alex Smith with foot speed and with the and with escapability. I think Alex Smith is a B plus to A minus um athlete. Whereas I don't see Baker Mayfield as that same level of athlete. Do you see him as a Alex Smith level athlete. If you look at it as now, yes. Now, when Alex was coming out, Alex was a, was definitely an A minus athlete. Um, but Alex now is not. You know, he still he still got some skill. He still gets some agility, but um, he's not. You know, he's well. He's clearly lost a step as a mm-hmm. runner. Um, 
you know, over the last couple of years. So, you know, I would say the current Alex Smith is probably a four eight guy, but he still has an explosive first step. Whereas Alex coming out was, you know, like a four five guy uh, who could move. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and Baker's a four eight guy. So I would say that, you know, right now, Alex athleticism is kind of where Baker is. He's got a, a, a nice first step. Um, I actually rewatched the, uh, the Oklahoma Ohio state game earlier today. Uh, was on uh, was on the four letter, and I watched it a little bit, and, and you can see it. Baker's not a great athlete by any stretch, but he's, he does a quick jab step. He does a quick first step, and it bails him out. He knows to step up in the pocket. He knows how to, you know, kind of find that that elusiveness. Um, and he's just he's just got that natural feel for it, and I, I, I like what I see there. I don't know that Baker's going to become an all world beater, but he's one of those guys. I think I I would definitely roll the dice on. Um, there's only been two or three of those guys over the last couple of years where I'm like, you know what. I would lay my, I would put the deed to my house up for this guy, you know? Um, And there've been some guys I've missed on, you know, like I, yeah, there were, there were traits. I, um, in my evaluation, I, I I hyper-focused on certain aspects of a player and missed the greatness that was the player for an aspect I didn't like, like Deshaun Watson, Um, you know, lower ball velocity, turn the ball over. However, uh, you know, you get you watch him in the pro game, and all of a sudden he's throwing touchdowns left and right. He still did have the second highest turnover rate in terms of interceptions, but he also was scoring so many points it didn't matter. You know, yeah. and so I think that's that's the other thing that sometimes we get caught up on is is we we get hyper focused on these little elements of things, and we we lose the forest for the trees. You know, and I think that's the thing with Baker is he gets the job done in the end. He finds a way. He's got that it factor, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's got that, and so in the same way that Deshaun did, except I was too busy focusing on one little component of his game to see it. Gotcha. And and you bring up some interest and I wanted to talk about um, you know, reporting versus analysis and, and quite honestly I I'm gonna run out of time, but I, I wanna I wanna touch on this because you mentioned it and it's interesting because you talked about Deshaun Watson and people are still people are still mentioning the turnovers with Deshaun Watson. And it's interesting to me how much they much people will focus on that part of it and say, oh, well, you know, pump your brakes because there were a lot of turnovers. But they seem to just completely, like, black over the billion turnovers that um, Carson Wentz had last year. You know, or not last year, excuse right. me, but his rookie his rookie yeah, before, season. Yeah. Um, yep. or, or Jared Goff, like, they just explained it away. Um, is it really just because... Deshaun Watson's game doesn't doesn't look like, you know, John Elway or well, I shouldn't say that because it kind of looks like John Elway early on. Um, it, yeah, is it is it that it doesn't look like you know your prototypical pocket passer that people tend to hyper focus on the negative instead of looking at all of those positive traits? Is that something that you think maybe it? Is is plaguing Lamar Jackson as we look at him right now? I think it's part of it. Uh, I think that anything that you know, people are used to a certain thing, and something looks different, we're hesitant to accept it right off the bat. You know, and that applies to a lot of things in life. It's not just a football thing. It that applies across many, you know, across the spectrum in life. Anything that looks different, we're we're hesitant to accept it at first. Um, I think the other part of it is, is people are so, you know, they get so entrenched in these opinions. You know well, I didn't think he was going to be good, so I'm going to find every excuse to make it look like he's still not good, you know? Uh, I think that's that's a large part, you know, to circle this discussion back to social media, um, a large part of the flaw with social media is that 
I, I think people can't let go. People can't admit they were wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, to me, that's, that's the thing. I think they get so entrenched in these opinions that they're unable to look past themselves and say, you know what? I got one wrong. Now, why did I get it wrong? You know, and for me, every time I get something wrong, that's a learning opportunity. That's that's like that's I look at that and say, okay, where did I miss here so I don't do this again? You know, and so I wish that I could convey that better on Twitter. But you know, it's it's always one of those things where I get caught up in the argument point. I never get a chance to to be like, you know, dude, it's it's okay to be wrong. I'm wrong sometimes. It's okay to be wrong. Make it a learning experience, though. Yeah, I hear you on that, and and I've I've definitely. Uh, I know myself and, and, and all of my, my, my squad and what we do, we, we look for the wrong because I, you don't learn from being right. <laughs> so, so we're right. looking for the things that we've done. Like, what did we not see? Like I wasn't, exactly. I wasn't as high on Dak press. I like that Prescott coming out of college, but I wasn't as high on Dak Prescott as um Chris James, one of our colleagues at football game plan. He, he had yeah. Dak Prescott as his number one quarterback. I was like, I don't like any of these guys necessarily as, you know, number one or somebody I would take in the first half of the draft. And he was really sold on them. And, you know, he came out like gangbusters. And what he said was, you know, I just felt like he was a guy who got it, you know, and I, I, there's something to that. There's something to a guy who just gets it. Like they understand their role. And while we can go all around the negatives of that Prescott, he's still having success in the NFL. And and that's really something that, you know, I had to kind of check and went, man, you know, he's true. He did always get it. I don't know. So, you know, but I was I was also a guy who, you know, who who loved um, Martavis Bryant coming out of out of college and not a lot of people liked them. And I said, you know what, mm-hmm. this guy, if he gets into the right system, he's got a skill set that you can't teach. He's tall and he is fast and he can catch the ball and and. Um, a lot of people were like, "Oh, he's going to be a bust. He's going to be a bust." And he's come out like gangbusters, and he had a he had a bad season last year. But I think that was more based off of some off field stuff than necessarily on the field. I'll be interested to see what he does in in Oakland. I'm gonna get you out on here. Can you um tell people where they could where they could find you at on Twitter? Yeah, um, you know, they can find me at uh, Albright NFL on Twitter. Um, it's probably going to be a dumpster fire, but uh, I try to keep it as uh, as informative as possible when I'm not bickering with somebody. Well, I'll say I'll, I'll give this I'll give this up to you. Um, you during the draft, you were putting you were you were dropping jewels out there, and a lot of them hit. Like a lot of the things that you were reporting that were going to happen were happening. I you were one of the first people I saw say it's Baker Mayfield, and you even said you were like it's Darnold. And then I remember you like flipped. You're like, no, I was wrong. It's Baker Mayfield. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's where they're going. And and I, I heard it come from you first. And then all of a sudden, I started kind of hearing other people spattering about it, but no one was really willing to, you know, to stamp it. And you were out there saying it's going to be Baker. It's not going to be Donald. Donald already knows it's not going to be Donald. You know that kind of thing. And and you know, so you got to you got to give give props what props to do. Um, with that, the the idea of reporting, when did reporters become analysts? Because I'm seeing it more and more now where um, reporters are being asked things that were normally reserved for people who studied the game. And I know that you do a lot of reporting, but you, you actually study the game. Um, but people like, let's say, people like Adam Schefter, 
Adam Schefter's not studying the game at a level that you or I is studying the game, and yet he's being asked questions of someone who studies the game that he's answering, and his answers kind of sound a little bit like boobish sometimes. Like, when did that become a thing where the, the reporter had to now become the analyst as well? I think that's a byproduct of the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, I think people demand more um, from, you know, reporters now. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think reporters, the people who report on the game, should know about the game, you know. Uh, but at the same time, it's also uh, led to some, uh, let's call them embarrassing television moments for some people who uh, are not as well-versed in the you know, in the game, they may be great reporters. Chris Mortensen and Adam Sheff are great reporters. Fantastic Neither one of them, uh, yeah. But but when you start to talk to them about the intricacies of football, uh, you start asking them the difference between one gapping and two gapping. Even you know they, they kind of they're like they glaze over. They don't know. <laughs> you know they know people. They know they know how to report. They know how to find a story. Um, and so I think people are demanding more out of reporters, and I think companies in trying to cost cut are trying to have you know two in one situations with all that. I I came up on the analysis side of the house, and I broke into reporting. Most people kind of go the other way, so I'm not I'm not the best person to answer that question because I kind of came at it backwards. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that you know, in my opinion. Um, you know, news outlets and entities are trying to cost cut, and they want guys who can do both. I think I think we and we spoke about this probably, man, well over a year ago, maybe even two. Um, we talked about we were talking about how the the fact that journalism in itself has morphed and when they, the the integrity of what the journalist used to be, and and how it was that that job was upheld and sources and how it's become more tabloid maybe it's just that sports journalism has become so opinion-based that these reporters have to insert their own personality and their own character into you know their reporting which means that they have to then give their opinion on things that they probably you know shouldn't give their opinion on i see it i see it in the um in the nba with a lot of nba reporters as well um over the years um, your David Aldridge's and, you know, um, you know, some of those guys, uh, Rachel Nichols, you know, is now in it as well, where, you know, she seems to be given a lot more opinion about things where she was just a reporter. And all of a sudden she's she's analyzing things. And um, and so I see it with a lot more reporters out there where is it more that they're just that's how their brand has to get built. Now, it can't just be. Rachel Nichols is a great reporter and and she does a great job reporting or Adam Schefter does a great job reporting. Is it that they have to have that name to go with them or that, that persona to go with them as well? Well, I guess I think that's exactly it. I think it's on the head. I think that the, and it started, you know, you could say that it started with Skip Bayless and the sports, you know, marketing um, where you had to have punditry involved in your reporting and all this kind of stuff or hot takey, contrarian opinion and whatnot to get noticed. But it started before that in politics. People have blurred the lines between uh, political punditry and political reporting, you know, um, and so these guys who have these talk shows, um, and I'm going to pick on a couple of the conservative ones really quickly, although I don't really carry the way. Um, guys like uh, Bill O'Reilly or, or, or Sean Hannity, those guys are pundits. They are not reporters. But 
uh, people tune into them as if they are the news, as if they are reporters. And so the reporters have seen this and, and those the numbers that they generate, uh, and, and they've started to kind of tilt what they do uh, to match that because they know that um, in media, it is a numbers game. If you're not getting the clicks, the hits, the views, the whatever, um, you're not going to get the dollars. And if you're not getting the dollars, you're not going to be employed long. So uh, it's, it's a situation where money is, you know, wagging the dog. Money is uh, uh, is driving it, and people have understand that they have to uh, evolve to become that, or else they're going to get left behind in terms of viewership. Gotcha. Um, best best rookie this year, best rookie season. Oh man, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know who I think went to the perfect spot for him, Calvin Ridley, um, taking over for Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Gabriel there, uh, put him in the slot. I think he's going to have a fantastic year. Um, you know, Saquon's going to have the opportunity. Um, I think Royce Freeman's going to get a big opportunity in Denver because he's going to be the first and second down back. Now CJ's gone. Um, do you man. think? Do you think that Chubb, because he fell to a team where he doesn't have to be the focal um, point, has an opportunity to have a big rookie year? Which Chubb, Nick or Bradley? Well, I'm sorry. Which Chubb, Nick or Bradley? Oh, Bradley. I'm sorry. <laughs> Because um, <laughs> uh, that question could apply to either. Um, yeah, I think he could be. Uh, he's going to be involved in the rotation. Uh, you know, I think the big thing with with Elway with drafting guys is he wants them to be a starter by year two. That's kind of his thing. Uh, so he'll be heavily involved in rotation. I know Vegas set the line at five and a half sacks. I'm interested to see the impact he has as more of a chess piece because you know he lined up all over at college, left side, right side, hand up, hand down, uh, going toward the ball, or even away from the ball in coverage. So I'm more interested to see how he uses a chess piece than rather you know looking at raw statistical totals. I would love to have seen him with the guys they have right now in a Wade Phillips defense. Oh yeah, I would oh, love yeah. to see Wade Phillips line him up right next to Von Miller and just like see what an offensive tackle does. Like it, it's, I, I've I've always marveled at how genius Wade Phillips is as a defensive coordinator and how inept he is as a head coach. I, I I think it's I think it's it's phenomenal, like how his mind can work so well as a coordinator, but when it comes to coordinating a team, he just doesn't seem to have that same knack. So. He was too conservative on the offensive side of the ball. That's always what killed him. Um, mm-hmm. The defense, I, I think he was probably the best defensive coordinator of his generation. Um, I, you know, I mean, you can look back guys like Jim Johnson, Dick LeBeau, um, but I, you know, I put Wade up there with both of them. Yeah, no, I think I think he's definitely he's definitely in the conversation. If not, if not, the top guy for me as well. Ben, I appreciate it. It was a fantastic um, conversation. Oh yeah, anytime. We got to do this more often, man. Yeah, definitely. That was um, Benjamin Albright. Thank you again, Ben, for joining us. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you for joining me on this first Offensive Interference podcast. Once again, my name is Gene Clemens. If you want to check this out again, make sure you check it out on SoundCloud at Football Game Plan. Make sure you go to the website, footballgameplan.com. Check out the YouTube channel, all of that good stuff. Follow me on Twitter at Gene Clemens. We'll holler at you next time.